You're listening to The Dollop. This is a bi-weekly American history podcast. Each week, I, Dave Anthony, These are getting pretty long. a story from American history to a guy I know. What? Named Gareth Reynolds, who has no idea what the topic is going to be about. Real loosey-goosey you're playing. Like, yeah. Took all the fun out of it, didn't you? What did I take the fun out of it? Just the good times we used to have. <laughs> or did you run out of occupations that aren't occupations? No, we used to be known for our intros. And now, I don't think we've ever been known for the intros. Now you just took the air out. I don't think I did. Known for our intros. Not at all. We got best intro in at what? Uh, Rolling Stone the magazine. The international potties? There's no potties. If there is, I want us nominated. God, you want a little hit of dude? I'll do one bottle. <laughs> people say this is funny? Not Gary Guerra. Dave, okay. Someone or something is tickling people. Is it for fun? And this is not going to become the Tickling Podcast. Okay. You are Queen Fakie of Made Up Town. All hail Queen Shit of Liesville. A bunch of religious virgins go to mingle. And do what? Pray. Hi, Gary. No. Nicely done, my friend. No. No. <laughs> Thirty-four hundred BC. <laughs> Yum. All right. What was going on around this time? Opium began to be used in Asia. Oh boy, here we go. The Sumerians called it the joy plant, as we still should. There's a couple of joy plants, maybe three. Yeah, and sometimes maybe more. If you there's pl- like there's like ten joy plants, and it, sometimes if you combine the joy plants, uh-huh. uh huh, then you get a super joy plant. Yeah. There's a, well, you don't grow them together, but you take what they have. And no. You know. what they Like, the way that they started was some guy had a dream about combining these two roots, and then he made ayahuasca. Anyway, it's not my time. <laughs> Luke Simmons told me that story. It actually is your time. Man, that, oof, that would have been my era. Uh, so, it's from the dried milky fluid extracted from opium poppies. Okay. The Sumerians would soon pass along the plant... And it's euphoric effect to the Assyrians, who we are big fans of. You always have supported the Assyrians. Um, we do the Assyrian... Um, uh, I can't think. Sure. Yeah. This is going to be a good one. Yeah. Okay. But I can't. The word is stuck in my head. Okay. The art of poppy... Well, let us know when it comes out. Yep. The art of poppy culling would continue from the Assyrian... Poppy culling? Culling. Poppy culling. Would continue from the Assyrians to the Babylonians, who passed it on to the Egyptians, and then it just, you know, everyone's like, this is great. And And then the Egyptians were like, we're birds, put them on our heads. (laughs) Come on. You have your TV on. And and no, that was... That was amazing because it? it was North Korean troops walking in formation, and it looked like they had guns with dildos on the end. Oh, like it well, was that's really it yeah. was really. I don't know what they're doing over there, but it's they it, got some great our army situations happening. Yeah. Opium probably first came to North America on the Mayflower in 1620. Wow. Okay. <clears throat> yep. Uh, it was in the kit bag of physician Samuel Fuller. Okay, I thought you said kid bag, which would not surprise me on a kid bag. A kid bag. Uh, you have a kid bag; it stays with you into adulthood. Oh, right. And then, yeah, and then it has its own bags. And then it's an adult bag, and it, it hangs more as you get older. Right. And well, then, then it becomes then, then it becomes a colostomy. And then when you go to a, when you go to a gym, it's a bummer to see the older men with their 
they're now not well, kid bags. I don't want to keep diverting, but I was scarred at the YMCA when I was six and walked into the men's locker room yeah. instead of the boys. Yeah, it's upsetting. <sighs> How can that be dragging on the floor? <sighs> How? Some guy just standing there. Give me a tissue, friend. No. You're like, oh, God. Uh, yeah, Samuel Fuller, Fuller <clears throat> probably carried laudanum, which is uh, basically alcohol, and then you put opium in it, and you mix it Whoa. up, and then you have a party. Whoa. I, mean, I don't know if it was a party that we they're having. We should be doing that more. What's it called? Laudanum? Laudanum. What's, yeah, it's like a mixture. Yeah, getting laud all day. Call it tink, tink, tincture, I believe. Tincture? Uh, tincture. By the time of the Get American... Tink on? No. You okay. don't get your tank. You don't get your tank on. Oh, no. Okay. I thought maybe I was going to get. No. Can I be a. Can I get my loud down? No. I can't get my tank or my loud on? No, this is medical. What am I going to do? This is for medical purposes. I need it. Well, you can't have it. All right. You can't have it. By the time of the American Revolution, opium was a common medical tool. Thomas Jefferson used, used laudanum in his later years to help deal with chronic diarrhea. Oh, okay. They don't put that in the in the history books. <laughs> no. But there should be the, a, the, the diarrhea years. I'll plug this in just in case it runs out. Oh, okay. Um, they should put uh, they should put that which founding fathers had terrible diarrhea. Well, I think we all know who's going on that list. My favorite, my man, Benjamin Franklin, Taft. Taft was not a founding father. Well, oh, founding fathers. Sorry, I thought we were saying presidents. Because <clears throat> you know Taft was... One of opium's side effects is, uh, was in his constipation, which a lot of people wanted because diarrhea was such a big problem back oh then. Oh my god, why do I know that now? Now you know... People don't talk about how much terrible <laughs> shitting was going on in, during the American Revolution. Oh god. And I think it's an important thing to focus on. Oh, the revolution. Um... Eventually, Jefferson grew his own poppies at his I'm cellar. shitting so much, I need it in the yard. <laughs> he built it his Montecito. Montecito oh, I'm a leaky prez. He did it because he had so much diarrhea. There's leaks coming out of the White House, and it ain't from the people who work for me. He felt so much better on the drug, but he wrote to a friend, quote, with... Hey, man, you good? Pooping less. Hit me up. I like to lay on benches. <laughs> Uh, he wrote, quote, with care and laudanum, I may consider myself in what is to be my habitual state. Oh, wow. Yeah. Care and laudanum. People don't talk about how our, CNL. our uh, founding father, Thomas Jefferson, liked to smoke pot and, and uh, took a lot of, of uh, opium. People don't talk about that. That's pretty great. In 1805, morphine and codeine were isolated from opium, but morphine was said to be about 10 times as potent right. as opium itself. Okay. So that's... High class, so it's just, yeah, op. highly concentrated. Yeah, junk. it's the sweet shit. Yeah. Um, so therefore, it became uh, very quickly one of the more popular uh, medicinal and recreational drugs in the U.S., where it was used as a pain reliever. Okay. What codeine was? Uh, no, both morphine. Morphine. Okay. morphine was much more popular. Yeah, of course. Well, yeah, ten times the effect. Yeah, it was the shiznit. In the 1800s, opium was, uh, it, like I said, it was very common. Um, it was used in the medications, including laudanum and, well, who's going to say that? Parajoric and many other medicines. These were used for everything from teething powders for babies to female complaints like morning sickness and menstrual pain. Jeez. 
So a little baby, baby got a little yeah, touch putting of... Putting it in a uh, baby's mouth is strange. Well, uh, if we if cocaine wasn't illegal, right, we would be putting it on kids' gums yeah. when they are teething. And then, I mean, we already think kids don't shut up. And then the party would be yeah. amazing. All right, man, we're going to Tampa. You're one. Uh, yeah, I am one, and I'm ready to go. Let's go. To Tampa. Pretty much uh, any condition under the sun it was being used for. Inexpensive opiates could be purchased from local pharmacies and even ordered through the Sears catalog. Oh, my God. What a time. Just get, just get yourself some opium through the... Hon, how much opium do we need this month? <laughs> All. How junked up we looking to be? I can't get off the floor. Oh, hon. All right. I'll just get the reg amount. Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup. Whoa, yes. A morphine and alcohol concoction was marketed to parents as, quote, perfectly harmless and pleasant. Perfectly harmless and uh, the perfectly. It's just a little red flaggy. And uh, as a way to produce a natural quiet sleep by relieving the child from pain. Wow. So, yeah, that was their iPad. It, worse than an iPad because you just knocked a kid out. You're like, okay, bedtime. Yeah. Give him some heroin. Not I don't want to go to bed. Give Here you are. Um, well, I put heroin in the kid. Want to screw? And even Harriet Tubman used to quiet babies on the Underground Railroad by giving them opium. Look, opium I've got no notes on Tubman, okay? Opium. No notes. Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., uh, one of the eminent physicians of the era, embraced opium, describing it as a natural substance, quote, which the creator himself seems to prescribe. <laughs> what? He's saying God yeah. gave us. He's saying God gave us opium. Yeah. I do. I mean, I, I really do. I mean, obviously, <clears throat> there's a lot of abuse that comes with it, but... There is something about, you know... It's natural? It comes, yeah, when it comes from Earth, there's... If feel, things are natural, they're there for a reason. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, there's clearly problems. Yeah. <laughs> Opium was perfect uh, for this... Uh, oh. So so many diseases, uh, the causes of many diseases were not very well understood, obviously, as we know from past episodes. Yes, then check. And in the early and mid-19th century, doctors resorted to treating the symptoms, so pain, rather than the causes. Right. So opium was perfect for this. Uh, but that, I mean, yeah. But they, I mean, they were trying. <laughs> they just had no idea what was going right. on. They were trying, but it was very, uh, just throwing shit against the wall. Yeah. Literally, Literally. in the White House. Yeah. Uh, so doctors used the drug for many purposes. Uh so mostly as a pain reliever, though. Okay. A, a drug addiction was not a totally alien idea. In 1821, in Britain, Thomas De Quincey gained fame as a drug addict when he wrote and published Confessions of an English Opium Eater. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's their version of the Basketball Diaries. Confessions of an English Opium Eater. An opium eater. This was the beginning of public awareness. Uh, his, still polite. <laughs> his habits were strongly criticized by his contemporaries. He described, quote, moral medicinal disease created new curiosity and perceptions of drug addiction, as well as the standard old condemnation of the weak-willed, virtue-lacking addict. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. I mean, you give people the choice and they abuse it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh look at that cat. 
They, uh, so then came morphine. Opiumator. Morphine was first manufactured for commercial distribution wow. in 1827 in Germany. Wow. Before then, opium and, 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 and how do you And how do you take the morphine? Uh, there's different ways, but right now it's mostly orally. Okay, so we're all eating the heroin. Yeah. Okay. This uh, medicinal use of opiates, already widespread in the 19th century, greatly increased with the arrival of the hypodermic syringe there it is. in the 1860s. There it is. Which enabled doctors to inject morphine directly into the bloodstream. Oh. Yeah. That's an interesting development, surely. Now you feel feel good, right? I mean, I can't tell where we're going to go. Oh, we're going right down this path. (laughs) Uh, The speed, this sped up the relief of the patient's, uh, you know, getting over his pain and avoided the unpleasant gastrointestinal effects associated with taking opium orally. So so what people are just... Chewing on opium and just crapping everywhere. Yes. Yeah, so, well, now it's not clogging you up if you're as much if you're shooting it, right? Right. So it clogs you up, right? Um, if you eat it, still today. Uh, but oh, so it was just like gastrointestinal pain from eating it. It's just you. It, you it's just horrible constipation if right. you eat. If you take if you take anything today, oxycodone or whatever, you, they also give you a laxative at the same time. That's nice of them. It's a good. That's fair. It's good. The Civil War came in 1861. Oh, boy. Neither side was prepared for the huge number of wounded soldiers that were to come. There were 113 doctors in the Army when the war started. That seems very low. Uh, Although 24 went to the South and three were dismissed for disloyalty. What? At the end of the war, however, there were over 12,000 doctors in the Union Army and over 3,000 in the Confederate (laughs) Army. Wow. This is a lot of doctors. So those three eventually came back. Yeah, I would. Well, look who's come. Look who's crawling back for us. Hey, guys. Oh, hey, look who it is. Let me guess. Need someone to sew up arms? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of appendages out there, huh? Hi. Yeah, I don't know. Well, you know, I'm kind of loving my life here now. Love the land. I've been tilling the soil. You ever till? You a tiller? Hey. Hey. So we need a guy to put stuff back together. Oh. Interesting. Yeah. I well, like your farm. Well, it's not going to be easy. Fuck you. I'm going to have to do a little something for the man. <laughs> what? Hmm? No, I'll come. I'll come. Two uh, percent of the population in the U.S. died during the war. Oh, wow. The actual death toll could be close to 752,000. We don't know. It's They say around 680, but a lot of the deaths... Um, of the Confederate Army were destroyed when Richmond was burned. Okay. So, so that's made it tougher. Um, we, yeah, we burned the file cabinets. Right. Smart. Of the wounded that made it to hospitals, twice as many died from disease as their wounds. Many factors can... Contri- Sorry, saying... What is that saying? So of the wounded that went to hospitals during the Civil War, yeah. the um, twice as many have died from uh, disease. Contracted... Yeah, at the hospital. Wow. Yeah, because it's not a great yeah. place. So Have as you you're dying, t- you're like, not the hospital. No, take not it. Not the hospital. Put me in a field. <laughs> Bury me now. Have you seen Jacob's Ladder? It's like that. Oh. Many factors contributed to a high rate of non 
combat-related illnesses, including overcrowded and filthy camps. Latrines were not used or were drained into drinking water or not covered. What? (laughs) By design? It's just a hole, yeah. So, okay. So it's a hole in the ground, or you just shit on the ground. In Anderson uh, prison camp, they would just shit up and then it would just go down this there was like one creek that went through the whole thing and so if you're at the bottom you're just drinking shit or piss it's fun food quality was poor it just mirrors the creek starting to taste funny <laughs> that tastes like larry hey food, food quality was poor on more than one a level it boy was, they're really fighting a battle in this era huh <laughs> it was poorly stored poorly cooked and lacked enough vitamin c to prevent scurvy oh, God. so they're killing it <laughs> literally Louisa May Alcott, author of Little Women, nursed the wounded after the Battle of Fredericksburg. Quote, the first thing I met in the hospital was a regiment of the vilest odors that ever assaulted the human nose. Well, she did have a way. Three of every four. That's from her book, Little Nausea. (laughs) Three of every four surgical procedures performed during the war were amputations. Oh, my God. Three of four. What? Each amputation <laughs> took about two to ten minutes to compete. Complete. Uh, well, hopefully, they're not competing. Yeah. Okay, go. Welcome to Limoff. This was when doctors got the nicknames Old Quinine, Old Sawbones, and Long John the Shoemaker. Uh, because they cut off one, and then they had a shoe. Then they would need a new foot. Pretty sure they would be Long John shoe, the shoe collectors. Maker. Yep, doesn't make sense. Okay, good. Noted. More limbs were removed during the Civil War than at any other point in American history so far. <laughs> Union General Carl Schurz described surgeons working after Gettysburg. Quote, there stood the surgeons, their sleeves rolled up to the elbows. Of course, their- Schurz goes right for what the shirts are doing. Their their bare arms, as well as their linen aprons smeared with blood, their knives not seldom held between their teeth, while they were helping a patient on or off the table or had their hands otherwise occupied. Around them, pools of blood and amputated arms or legs in heaps, sometimes more than man high. Oh, my God. What? So, so piles of piles of uh, limbs, limbs higher than, than dude, the higher than dude. Dude cuts one off and throws it on top of the pile. Jenga. Assume, uh, <laughs> when you read this shit, are you just like, what's going on? Oh yeah, a fucking. You read a detail is, like that, you're like, and in uh, some ether was administered. It doesn't sound like a, a cool area. No, it's not great. <laughs> Some ether was administered and the body put in position in a moment. The surgeon snatched his knife from between his teeth where it had been while his hands were busy, wiped it rapidly once or twice across his blood-stained apron, and the cunning began. The operation accomplished, the surgeon would look around with a deep sigh and then yell, Next! It sounds like a busy subway. For body parts. But not what doctors should be doing. No, I, do- I, feel like, I feel like if you're in a place where a doctor is yelling next, you're in a bad place. Yeah, it sounds like a pizzeria at lunch. Except... Move! Except there's a giant... Pile of... Pile of body. Pizza pieces behind them. Yeah. Taller than them. 
There were uh, 175,000 extremity wounds to Union soldiers, and about 30,000 of these underwent amputation uh, that had a 26.7% mortality rate. Oh, my God. Now, Lister's discovery of germ theory was not until after the war in 1867, so no sterile techniques were used. Oh, Jesus. And these guys, I mean... Hospitals were disgusting and not clean. But what they did... did, uh, did they, were they aware that that was terrible? No, they didn't think it was a problem. That's why he has the knife in his mouth and he's yeah. wiping on his shirt. Like, they just don't think that's a big deal. Right. <laughs> uh, but what they did have was pain medicine. Oh, good. Well, they're going to need it. Opium. Some for the doctor? The Federal Army consumed approximately, approximately 10 million opium pills and wow. over 80 tons of opium powder wow. and tinctures, including 30,000 ounces of morphine. Wow. So that's so they're I'm, really junking. They're going. At, but look, your arm's just been cut off. You're like, yeah, yeah give it to me. Pat yeah. it on there. Just pat it on. It's the other option. Soldiers began to label surgeons and physicians Was anybody as, putting opium into the pile of limbs? No, at that point the limbs were like we're good. Okay, I wasn't yeah. sure if they were. Like, I can't. I can't really feel anything anymore. Still, sort of scrambling around a little. Soldiers began to plant uh, to begin to label surgeons as, and physicians as quacks, expressing their frustration at the medical men's apparently lackadaisical attitude toward the injured and ill. I'm just trying to picture a lackadaisical attitude as you can cut off. Yeah, some is it? Po- Ugh, another. Uh, here we go, cutting her off. Uh, the default response to any sickness was an overdose of quinine or a calomel that usually resulted in poisoning, and the hurried and careless treatment of wounds often resulted in, a, in infection and even death. Soldiers even started accusing the doctors of being drunk. <laughs> sounds well, David. Sounds they, like a wacky little hospital. But uh, the surgeon also has to mentally protect yeah. himself, and by doing that, he has to just check out, or he's yeah. going to go insane. Uh, there's no. He's throwing limbs on a pile. Uh, he's going to go crazy if he doesn't check out. Yeah, I. You understand? I mean, everybody's right. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. Soldiers, uh, like I said, accused him of being drunk. In truth, they just didn't know how much. Uh, they just didn't know much and didn't have the time or space during the war to really do anything differently. Right. Or maybe they were lackadaisical. From the book, Opiate Addiction as a Consequence of the Civil War. Quote, Surgeon Major uh, Nathan Mayer, with a bottle of morphine powder in one pocket, quinine in the other, and whiskey in his canteen. Meyer did most of his diagnosing on horseback. When he <laughs> <laughs> so he was like WebMD. <laughs> Doc, can you can we just just to pretend that you care? Can, you get, off, can you get off the horse? Can you get off the Slapper! horse and look at him? Measles. Can you get off the horse and look at him? Ugly. That's not a gunshot. Ugly's not a. a that's not a anything. It's an affliction. We have no, laws. No. We will have ugly laws. Put him in the limb pile. Yeah. When he wished ride scalpel ride. When he wished to dispense morphine, he would pour out an exact quantity and then let the soldier lick it from his hand. 
Like a dog. <laughs> like a dog that you forgot to give water to, and you're, like, coming back from a hike. There you go. Lap it up. There you go, boy. There you hey, go. Some, I there want some go. morphine. Drink it out of my Ooh. blood disease paw. Who likes morphine? Ugh. <laughs> from the medical and the surgical history of the War of the Rebellion, which is what it was called for a while. It wasn't called the Civil War. It was called uh, the Rebellion. Okay. Published by the U.S. Surgeon General's Office in 1870. Oh, it's Groot. What? Go ahead. Yep. Opium. This medicine merits the first place among remedies. It was used almost universally in all cases of severe wounds and was found peculiarly useful in penetrating wounds of the chest. In quieting the nervous system and indirectly in moderating hemorrhage. When used with discretion, there can be no question of its great utility. Well, they've always had our back. Um, d- does it? St- did it stop bleeding? No, I mean, it, I think it slowed everything down. I right. Uh, it must have, if they say it. I but basically, know. it was just a overused. I, yeah, it's just that's all they have. Right. I, I would think that. J- just the, all the bleeding would slow down the bleeding. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, and also, I mean, if you've been looking at blood for two years coming out of people, it becomes so useful that yeah. I mean, so un- un- unusual that you're like, oh yeah. Nearly 10 million opium pills were issued to Union soldiers, along with 2.8 million ounces of other preparations. No doubt, opium was used on the Confederate side too. We just don't know the numbers. Opiates were used to treat not just wounds, but chronic wartime diseases like diarrhea, dysentery, and malaria. Okay. Thousands of Civil War soldiers were first dosed with opium or morphine in field hospitals during the war and came home struggling with addiction. Yeah. Narcotics became even more popular after the war <coughs> as uh, invalid veterans sought relief from constant pain. So the invalid guys are, uh, are hurt yeah. And they're back, and they're just, they're getting high. Well, I, you know, I think it's pretty obvious what we're supposed to say here. Boy, times have changed. The science of addiction had not yet emerged, and doctors prescribed opium and morphine regularly for pain management and sleeping problems. A.M. Chappell was a veteran of the 14th Infant Virginia Infantry and had been wounded at the Battle of Gettysburg when a ball crushed through his left knee. Mm. That, that's a terrible description. Yeah. Because um, your knee is where the bending happens. Yeah, and this is before MCL, ACL. And if something goes through your knee, right. then it's, you know, it's bad. It's not. A big bullet. Uh, he noted he would never get entirely over the wound. By 1886, Chappelle was, quote, very poor indeed, with a wife and child to support. He wrote to Lee... And only one leg. To do a leg. Right, and there's the hopping part. He wrote to Lee Camp uh, Soldiers Home for admission into the institution. In his letter, he noted his lingering disability, poverty, and addiction to morphine. Quote, the doctor put me on morphine, and I can't stop that. Well, that's pretty clear. Of treatment from the medical and surgical history of the War of Rebellion uh, by U.S. Surgeon General's Office, 1870. Case, Private Philo White of the 7th Michigan Volunteers, uh, aged 19 years, was wounded September 17th by an explosive ball, which entered the arm above the elbow and exploded in the belly of the pectoral muscle. Wow. Making the cavity large enough to admit the fist. 
Ugh. Okay, so... Oh, it goes right in. Look at this. Look. Look at this. How big is it, you ask? Put your fist in there. Put your... Not you, giant Tommy. <laughs> hey, let's put some of the fists from this pile of arms in it. He was treated in the field uh, with simple dressings uh, and uh, pain-killing drugs until the 27th when he was transferred to a hospital in Philadelphia. He lives... Uh, he's surviving. It sounded yeah. pretty... On the 30th, muscle spasm occurred and uh, was regarded as a symptom of tetanus. Opium was administered internally and externally, so they're just popping it inside yeah. and rubbing was, it on the outside. Was there, I mean, were there many he's, times where a doctor didn't say opium? It's just yeah. all opium. There you go. We're going to get you in the mouth. We're going to put some, some here. In the hole, in there the other are. hole. Put some here, this. this is a spray we're going to use. This is a bit of a salve, actually. This is a balm. This is going to go up your bottom. And here, snort this. Gonna put this in your ear, one of these up your ass, and shoot it between your toes. How are we um, doing, bud? Good. There we go. I feel great. Can I go? No. No. No, you're dying. The patient made a complete recovery. Whoa, what? And was discharged in December. Wow. So they I just I mean October thirtieth, another guy, tongue clean and moist. Bowels regular, his bowels have Sorry, been... I thought his name was Tongue Clean and Moist. That's his name. Tongue clean and moist, bowels regular. <laughs> His bowels have been regular throughout. Treatment has consisted of iron, quinine, whiskey three times a day, and at bedtime, four grams of opium. Man, I'll, I, I mean... That's a party. I mean, you're in a, you're in a party hospital. I, how great would it be if doctors still were like, we're going to need a little whiskey, too. Whiskey before... <laughs> whiskey of whiskey. Nutritious diet, eggs, chickens, beef. The local treatment has been quite simple. The gangrenous wound... Was first bummed with nitric acid. What? Bummed? Yeah, I can't. Is he surf doctor? It, yeah. Dude, and, your body's not chill right now, okay? So you got a bum wound. The gonorrhea is harshing you. So what we're going to need to do is chill, relax, yeah. and fucking make it happen. Okay. You know? Is there another doctor? There are a lot of doctors, yeah, but like... I would like one I'm of those. I'm your primary fizz, bro. Like, I'm your pro fizz. So, okay. I'm your pri fizz. Yeah, you I know? get it. So, I'm going to say, like, whatever. What we need your body to do right now is to be like, no way. Okay. And it's kind of being like, yeah, maybe. Okay, I want you to go away. All right, later. Don't do that. Woo. Do the hang ten. Yeah. Sick waves today. Complexion dusty, hectic flush around the cheeks, wound below the knee. A complexion can be dusty? Yeah. Okay. Exposes a raw surface of near 40 square inches. A wound below the knee exposes a raw surface of nearly 40 square inches. I don't have 40 square inches of fucking leg. Yeah, I'm doing the math. Were inches different? Because that's the only explanation. Muscles in most parts denuded of all fibrous tissue and... Of a slick red color with some granulations. <laughs> Gangrene is still extending. Well, yeah. Cool. Um, so anyway, they gave they just gave that guy opium and to get him through it. Was, and that and there was no indication of what happened to him. Hmm. Well, that's a telling. With the end of the war, thousands of wounded soldiers returned home with missing limbs, severe injuries, and ongoing pain. So as the reason I, I wrote those two things is because these guys have a fucking hole in their arm right. and their leg is just unusable. Unusable, covered in moist gangrene. And these are the guys that are coming home. They're totally fucked up beyond belief. Right. But these are the ones who are considered survivors. Yeah. Right. And so they have ongoing pain. Right. Surely. 
Uh, and those, so they're doing opium and morphine. Confederate soldiers returned uh, to a defeated and humiliated South with cities like Atlanta in ruin. Besides physical pain, they suffered from PTSD, and they used morphine. And one out of every five Southern males of military age were killed in the war. Many heartbroken families turned to drugs to cope with the devastating loss of a husband, son, brother, or father. Horace B. Day wrote, quote, Maimed and shattered survivors. Sorry, what? Who Horace B. Day. Okay, sorry. That sounded I left like a Horace Bidet. Sex worker birthday. He's a he 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 just works on the bidet. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Horace Bidet. Well, I'll tell you what's not dirty, Horace. Not again. What? I, let me tell them of my invention, Grace. Now, um, don't you sometimes wish the toilet would shoot back, Horace? Stop. All right. Just trying to have fun. I've been in the lab tinkering again. Quote, maimed and shattered survivors from a hundred battlefields, diseased and disabled soldiers released from hostile prisons, anguished and hopeless wives and mothers made so by the slaughter of those who were dearest to them have found many of them temporary relief from their sufferings in opium. While it was called an army disease and the, and obviously saying that, that's what all veterans were bringing was the morphine addiction. That's what they're calling the, it. So the the right the, the claim is that the okay the yeah. people that you that were uh, forced into addiction essentially have brought it home for some yeah, reason basically. Right. But Southern women were ground zero for the morphine addiction, and not just because they lost family members, but also because the drug was now flowing into the South after the war, and women uh, went through this thing called childbirth, which would cause. Pain. And I've never heard of it being painful. Their lives to be I know that. I know that women often call uh, childbirth uh, the female kidney stone. The- <laughs> <laughs> letters. We get letters. Uh, also, no one has written about this anywhere. But the, but women couldn't fucking work. Like, if yeah, someone the- is just supposed to sit around and I look know. pretty, then they're probably going to start doing fucking drugs or whatever else is around to I don't know occupy their time or uh, escape reality. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you yeah that that is it. <laughs> All right, keep going. We'll get into it. Uh, so it took off with a lot of white. And middle affluent and middle class women all over the country. Uh, is it primarily shooting, uh, or is are we still well, eating? And- I think this is this is um, what you're getting in medicine. So whatever okay, medicine so- you're getting is how you're taking it. Okay. I don't think it's shooting. Right. In the war, I read that it was like they had like 2,900 syringes for 10,000 um, surgeons. It's a I bad mean, stat. It's not good. Uh, Edward Levenstein's when your oh, doctor says you're clean, right? It's not great. No. So there are and then now people are starting to maybe think, but there maybe there's an addiction part of this. Mm-hmm. Edward Levenstein's morbid craving for morphia. <laughs> wow. I mean, good lord. Uh, was written in 1878. Quote: Here begins the history of the disease I'm going to describe, and to which I have given the name of morbid craving for morphia. Morbid craving for morphia means... You know he thought that was great. Oh, he thought it was the fucking best. Honey, I've landed on my title. It's so wonderful. (laughs) Why are you calling me an asshole? (laughs) Morbid craving for morphia means the uncontrollable desire of a person to use morphia as a stimulant and tonic and the disease state of the system caused by the use of said remedy. Okay. So basically saying it's... Okay. But there was also always room to go after minorities. Right. White... 
affluent people mm-hmm. started oh. frequenting opium dens in San Francisco's Chinatown. Okay. So we're now that's a problem, right? Right. Because before it was just the Chinese smoking it in their opium dens, and now white, well, young white people are like, I, I it's think, hipsters. Dave, if I can spin it, white people are the light that shines upon the problem. Thank you. You know, thank and you. um, and you know it's a problem when it affects the whites. No, thank and you. until then. You know, people are just uh, not handling shit properly. So people became concerned because a lot of these were women. Uh, tabloids owned by William Randolph Hearst published stories of white women being seduced by Chinese men and their opium to invoke fear of the yellow peril. Oh, my God. This is, <laughs> this is really deep. This is a deep cut. <laughs> So everybody's taking shrapnel. I was like, "All right, yeah, well, this is about a, this is about the cost of war." Oh well, the kid always could throw a little race issue in there, huh? Spice it up. Naturally, temp- temperance advocates, missionaries, and moral farmers were not pleased. San Francisco outlawed public opium dens in 1875. This is America's first anti-drug law. Okay. Wow. Okay. Many other communities with Chinese immigrants followed suit, but the private use and commercial sale of Opium stayed legal. Okay, so how, so they so just they just cracked down on the opium dens. On basically, they just were like, "Be private about it." Because white women were going down there to smoke opium. So the solution is to make sure that publicly white women aren't doing that. But they're doing it. They, in, and, with, they get medicine and they do it at their house. Yeah, it's just not publicly. supposed to. Not around Chinese people. Right. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> the, <laughs> they're bad influences Thank on you, you, the Chinese. By the 1880s, about 60 to 70% of addicts were female. Wow. Women uh, were the doctor's best customers. They were more likely to go to a doctor because of childbirth and et cetera. Surveys conducted between 1878 and 1885 showed that well over half of U.S. opiate addicts were affluent women. So it's a rich white woman's disease. Right. Right. Opium, and and, and, it, and it Morphine. still is just being prescribed just it's still being for prescribed. general... It's medicine. Ish, it's, yeah. it's medicine. It's a, the great silencer in a way. Yeah. The destruction of slavery and the southern slave economy also led many southerners to turn to the drug use. The abolition of slavery wiped out billions of dollars in slave capital. It's a weird way to say it. Mm-hmm. Having to now pay wages along with... Uh, having international competition hobbled the cotton economy. But, in like, <laughs> I mean, isn't that, like, to some effect, to some effect being like, oh, well, the CEO got addicted to heroin because the minimum wage got raised? Well, I mean, I think it's just saying that the... Like, the, it's hard... I, the it, economy's devastated. When the economy's devastated, you see what happens. Right. Right. And we you never would now. wish addiction upon someone, but if your addiction or affliction at this time is caused by the fact that you're like, man, I can't believe I can't keep prisoners in my yard anymore. <laughs> oh, I got to escape this. Um, one opium dealer said, quote, since the close of the war, men once wealthy but impoverished by the rebellion have taken to eating and drinking opium to drown their sorrows. Black Southerners were far less likely to be addicts. <laughs> well, because Mostly. that's the other side of the coin. They weren't sad about not being. Yeah, because one, I mean, for one, for one group, they're like, "What a great era!" And the others are like, "Oh fuck, we can do anything." I mean, within reason. Let's not get crazy. Uh, in the entire U.S., blacks had the lowest rate of addiction, but it's also because they were poor and didn't have access to regular medical care. So okay. it's a two. It's right. a two pronged thing. So number there's one, three sides to the coin, I guess. Number one, somehow. they're. Enjoying a great 
time. There's that brief time after the Civil War where they actually get elected and right. actually, uh, and having, then and then we enter the well, that stopped right. Uh, morphinism, the Morphin? habit, and morphin morphine eating were all terms that were used. Morphinism. Morphinism. <laughs> okay. I got the morphinism. Uh, me too. The word addiction wouldn't become common for another thirty years. Recipe books at the time I don't like this start did not just contain food recipes mm-hmm. but in the back there were medical recipes what they were 19th century home medical cures and often they would contain opium as an ingredient what which made sense because you buy it all over the country well the cake's going to be another 10 minutes and the heroin's almost done <laughs> it's not heroin it's opium well whatever some doctors did begin to worry about morphine addiction near the end of the 19th century. Medical journal- journals would recommend doctors not leave a syringe and morphine alone with a patient. <laughs> Instead, they were told to try to disguise the medicine so the patient wouldn't match their withdrawal symptoms with the drug. I'm sorry. You're so going to run that back. So they're giving people morphine, but they don't want the people to no. associate it with the drug. So they're trying to like secretly give it to them now so that they, so that they, so that they don't are put getting the two together. opiates, but they're like, why am I craving opiates Every again? eight hours, I feel weird. No, I don't know. How do they sneak it? They're just they're, uh, putting it in their cereal? I can't. I don't no idea. Try some more opiates. Uh, those who those patients who did figure it out had no problem finding an accommodating doctor to prescribe the drug. Uh, this one this meant no one is going to the black market to get their fix. They're all just going to doctors, and no one really wants to put veterans or women in prison. So it's just it's the solution that'll do. Often, the medical solution to the addiction was substituting some other drug. In 1884, Sigmund Freud recommended cocaine as a means of treating morphine in alcohol addiction. He loved coke, right? Yeah. Yeah. He also wrote of cocaine's value as a mental stimulant and aphrodisiac. So he liked to fuck on. He liked to fuck on cocaine. (laughs) I mean, is it plausible that he was just a cokehead who eventually just said enough stuff that some of it was? There's no way he didn't rub coke on his dick. Oh my god! Well, that is. I mean, is anyone else in podcasting making accusations like this? <laughs> the ball's in your court, Freud family. Prove us wrong. At the same time, many cities... A little for the doctor and a little for the doctor's doctor. <laughs> Have you let m- met little Ziggy? <laughs> I'll be in once I can feel my cock head again. Um, uh, so at the same time, many cities in the U.S. believe cocaine was the number one drug problem. Because it was now being used by lower class people, uh, right? So Sigma Force tried to push it, but they're like, "Well, no, the blacks are using that." Like it's I, a whole I, fucking. I really can't even wrap my mind around that level of. Uh, that just is a little bit of mind boggling uh, racism. Well, have you ever heard of crack? I have heard of crack. Yeah, yeah. Opium was still thought of as an upper class drug at this time, but it doesn't. It just doesn't make it. it it just doesn't make any sense. Well, if it's tied to, to if it's tied to the medical community, it is legitimized. But it's all and also the people who can afford to go to a doctor are the wealthy. So the wealthy are getting heroin for or not heroin morphine for whatever they need it for, right? All the time, right? But then the idea that if black people do it, it's 
not like well, how no. does that affect your relationship oh, with well, opiates? I can't I can't explain racism to you if you don't understand it by now. Well, <laughs> I'm trying to learn it. I'm trying, just a lot of question marks. Um, yeah, I feel like the, that guy in that question mark suit in D.C. who has those infomercials. Um, but this started to change. In a paper entitled Morphinism and its Re- Relation to the Sexual Functions and Appetite in 1892, a Dr. T.J. Happel presented several case histories of children born to parents addicted to opiates. Mm-hmm. He argued that the opiates were extremely dangerous because of their addictive properties could be genetically transmitted, thereby instilling in the offspring of addicts a condition of the nervous system, which predisposed them to opiate addiction. That's pretty forward thinking. Yeah. I, I mean, mean <laughs> he's a little off with the nervous system and stuff, but yeah, but that's just still born, to, yeah, to say to, yeah, they're born addicts. Yeah. They're born. They need it. Yeah. This phenomena was devastating. Happel concluded because opium caused insanity, idiocy, and imbecility. <laughs> You're going to have to excuse my friend. He suffers from imbecility. <laughs> um, I'll have an apple. Okay. Okay. We'll we have, we'll have two whiskeys. Not at a. Um, two apples. Store. We're not and at a. And. We're at a blacksmith. Hey! Uh, what? Apples! <laughs> in, eight, in 1895, Apple declared that. Morphine, opium, and laudanum are poisons and will kill with as much certainty as as certainty as will strychnine, arsenic, and such like poisons. So they should be subject to the existing statute prohibiting the sale of poisons to children under 10 years of age. Yes, once they're 11, it's time for poison. <laughs> Not till then, everybody. You heard it here first. You can't have your morphine until you're 11. You know that. Morphine, you're eight. <laughs> You've got another two years, boy. He blamed druggists for the problem. Quote, over and over, a child of less than 10 years of age steps into a drugstore with a 50-cent piece. Shut up. And a small scrap of paper inscribed with one word, morphine. No name is signed. What? No. (laughs) You just had to know how to write morphine and you got it? You literally needed money and the word morphine. It seems that's... And nothing else. It seems like that's the... Yes. Okay. The bottle of morphine is wrapped up and passed to the child over the counter. A death may follow the sale, but the morphine cannot be traced. Harper's Magazine called opium the poor child's nurse. Wow. So now opium, like anything that happens, starts with the rich and is now slowly filtering down to everyone in society because guess what? People want to make money. Yeah, because of money. And if they can make money selling heroin to children over the counter, they will. They will. Apple also advocated the commitment of all opiate addicts to asylums for the insane. Addicts should be institutionalized until they were completely cured because, according to Apple, they were, quote, persons dangerous to the public and should be not be permitted to be at large. How are they? How what is the uh, path for curing addiction in this time? There is throwing someone in a room and being like, kick it, Joe. Uh, there were some guys that tried to wean, I think, but it's not great for yeah. the most part. Well, bec- I mean, because we now, yeah, all right. And then, and then soon, you know, cocaine is right. like, like Freud said, cocaine. Like, so uh, the cure for heroin is cocaine. So Freud kind of hurt. Morphine. Freud kind of hurt the whole thing by throwing coke I mean, out there. 
It's an upper. You take it down or you take an upper. It sure. feels like a cure, right? Yeah. They probably were like, people were probably like, when Freud, he was halfway through that, they were like, good old Freud. No more heroin. It's, it's terrible for all people. It's not heroin. It's morphine. Cocaine. Morphine. What is the difference? You'll see. Oh, boy. Addicts should be institutionalized. Oh, I already did that. Uh, peer pressure to stop fellow doctors from prescribing morphine was beginning and would start to snowball. So doctors are starting to figure it out. They're like, well, maybe we're not doing good by giving everyone morphine because okay. everyone's becoming addicts. I mean, think about it. You're talking about 10-year-old addicts. Yeah. You're uh, creating child addicts. It's not okay. I've always said that that's not okay. By the, I didn't. I didn't say it until a couple of years ago. Oh, God. I've always been, you know, let them, once they're 11, they can pick. By the 1890s, medical students were being taught the dangers of prescribing morphine. Good. Yeah, so we're turning a corner. Oh, took, well, you know. we'll turn it back. In September 1898, the Chattanooga Times reported that a local doctor, J.J. Straker, had recently treated several cases of morphine poisoning in, quote, a neighborhood inhabited by altogether a very low and depraved class of Negroes. Dr. Straker also believed that careless drugstores in the city were to blame for the poisoning and said that anyone who could procure the drug in large quantities with the greatest facility. The Times concluded with a grim evaluation of the increasing problem of opiate abu abuse among Chattanooga's black underclass, quote, it appears that the morphine habit is growing at an alarming rate among the low-class Negroes of this city. It is cheap and produces sensations of an agreeable and uh, of an agreeable character. Most Negro women prefer it to whiskey, although some of them take both. None of the Negroes understand the use of the drug, and as a little produces satisfactory results, they imagine that more will be better, but thus all but kill themselves. So. It just happens to be a coincidence that doctors are saying it's addictive around the time that uh, black people start taking it. So weird. Yeah, as usually happens. Okay. And and notice in what they write up is that the black people can't handle it, as opposed to the white people who are on top yeah. of it. I mean, we've got 10-year-olds doing it. In 1874, heroin had first been produced from morphine in a lab in Britain, but nothing came of it. And then in 1898, Bayer, a German company, basically rediscovered heroin. Isn't Bayer still a company? Yep. Bayer scientist Heinrich Dresser leapt on the drug's potential. They began the animal testing phase of the product, testing it primarily on rabbits and frogs. Uh, well. Hey, hey, man. Hey. 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 Uh, hey. Rivet. Right? Uh, right? Uh, Really? Uh, oh, fuck. I can't jump. Uh, I can't I, jump. I can't get hard. Oh, man. Wow. It's so great. Well, and what is that? Is that just like the hop test? Is that done hopping? It's so great being a frog. Is that done hopping now? Um, they also... Uh, they, would, they would test it on people, basically workers at Bear. They would just go, hey, you want some... Uh, yep. <laughs> yes, I do. I've seen the frogs and bunnies. <laughs> Including Heinrich Dresser himself. Dresser soon had it ready, uh, heroin ready for widespread distribution. Wow, that's quite a statement. Bayer began promoting heroin as a non-addictive painkiller <laughs> and cough medicine for children. Oh, my God. Okay. 
heroin. The company used the trade name heroin because early <laughs> testers said it made them feel heroic. Wow. Heroin is from the word. Wow. <laughs> it was soon sold as a cure for morphine addiction and alcoholism. What? As a cure for morphine? What's the problem? That it's a more potent morphine. Yep. Okay. Dresser <laughs> had concluded that heroin was not habit forming. So, I mean, everything was a lie. <laughs> right? Bear hid the truth that when heroin metabolized, the active ingredient remained morphine, which was now known to be highly addictive. Okay. Interesting. So, so if you ate it orally, it turns into, it metabolizes into morphine, which is what you're trying to stop. Don't want that. In just a year, Bear was producing about a ton of heroin a year. And, and this is to shoot? Well, to sniff. Sniff, smoke, shoot. Sniff, smoke, shoot, eat, okay. yeah. Uh, it was exporting the drug to 23 countries, 23 countries including Easy. the United States. Free samples were sent to thousands of doctors. Oh, my God. The label on the samples showed a lion and a globe. <laughs> what? And it's called Bear. <laughs> Confusing. Studies appeared in medical And journals. his name's Dresser. This is becoming, all this is becoming a little... Witch in the wardrobe. Yeah. That's where we're going. Okay. Um, the bear, the lion, the world, the dresser. So studies, uh, a, a positive study started appearing in medical journals. Okay. The philopan... Philo... That's oh, all right. Philanthropic St. James Society... Okay. ...mounted a campaign... To supply free samples of heroin through the mail to morphine addicts who were trying to give up their drug habits. I mean, that's literally like what detergent companies do to get you to switch. Except and this is heroin. Heroin. To get people off morphine, they, they gave something more addictive. In the mail. In the mail. Through the mail. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that's out there. It didn't go well. Really? And remember, this is also when cocaine was introduced and was being used by Coca-Cola. So things are popping. Well. Yeah. Shit, shit is fucking going off. And they, by the way, that is so true, too, because we even talked about that in the Coke episode, that it wasn't it, – that didn't become a problem until black people started drinking it. That's right. when people were like, well, I don't know if this is okay. Same deal. All right. There were heroin – Pastilles, heroin cough lozenges, heroin tablets, water-soluble heroin salts, and a heroin elixir. The tag should have been, put the hero in. <laughs> heroin, put the hero in. Bear never advertised heroin to the public. Well, a little bit they did, so that's not true. But they mostly publicly, uh, they mostly publicity-wise sent material to doctors, um, to get them to prescribe it. Right. Um, and it was unambiguous. One flyer described the product this way. Heroin, the sedative for coughs. Order a supply from your jobber. Your jobber? <laughs> I guess that's where you got it from. Your Job, jobber? Your jobber. Is that a store? It's a job. Just uh, get it from your jobber. I'm it's confused. a guy who comes around. Probably. I don't have if a jobber. You, no, he'll come by. I, I, will, ha I will have a jobber. You're going to get a jobber. And he's going to... Come by and give you heroin. Because he's a jobber. You trust. Okay. Trust. I like heroin. The Boston Medical and Surgical Journal wrote in 1900, quote, it possesses many advantages over morphine. 
It's not hypnotic, and there's no danger of requiring a habit. It's not hypnotic. The Boston Medical and Surgical Journal said it's not hypnotic. And it's not, doesn't turn into a habit. I know, yeah, that's bullshit, but hip, it's not hypnotic. By 19... How are you... It's not. Where is it on the hypnosis scale? <laughs> By 1902, heroin sales were accounting for about 5% of Bear's net profits. Okay. So it's killing it. Heroin's killing it. Literally. Just a couple years in. By 1902, doctors began writing in medical journals about the side effects of using heroin as a morphine cure. (laughs) Several argued that their patients suffered from heroin withdrawal symptoms equal to morphine addiction. Well, that shouldn't be. A German researcher denounced it as, quote, an extremely dangerous poison. Okay. By 1903, heroin addiction had risen to alarming rates. This is just fucking three or four years in. And yet, between 1899 and 1905, at least 180 clinical works on heroin were published around the globe, and most were favorable, if cautious. Of course. (laughs) It's great! Yeah. It's great! In 1906, the Pure Food and Drug Act required accurate product labels. So Roosevelt passes this thing, and you have to you have to say what's in it. Okay. <laughs> and many consumers began avoiding products containing possibly addictive ingredients like heroin. Sure. So people are like, "Well, this shit's fucked up." Well, this has heroin in it. But the American Medical Association gave heroin its stamp of approval in 1907. Good. As we've uh, learned. Um, the AMA never does anything wrong. No, I think it's safe to say that the uh, AMA and the FDA will not just approve anything. <laughs> uh, doctors urged uh, doctors were urged to prescribe heroin instead of morphine because the AMA thought heroin was less addictive. Doctors gave it to just because, right? Just because this cause is they, money. That's what Bear said. Because Bear said it, and okay, yeah. right. So doctors were giving heroin to both children and adults. Tuberculosis was the leading cause of death, and it came with coughing, and heroin was super helpful with coughing. <laughs> and were, dying. And dying. Pharmaceutical heroin was twice as powerful as morphine, and it turns out even more addictive than morphine. <laughs> Good. But the doctors prescribing it didn't know this. I mean, it's just it's so fucking similar. What to what? To literally what happens today with fucking opiates. (laughs) What are you talking about? In 1909, Congress passed the Opium Exclusion Act. Again, it only applied to the opium processed for smoking uh, that Chinese immigrants favored. So now they they made smoking opium illegal. The cure is to get the Chinese to stop. Uh... It's and that, other weak-minded ideas. Again, it said nothing about the medical uh, opium white Americans were enjoying and using. But in truth, the act had little to do with the morphine's problems. The State Department determined that by banning smoking in opium dens, it would curry favor with China. Because Britain had introduced opium to China, it was very popular. And in doing so, Congress created the first illegal drug, smoking opium. Other types of opium were not banned. So they, so they want, so Britain introduces opium to China. to China. Chinese are loving it. They're smoking like crazy. China's like, fucking stop with the fucking opium. Right. So as a sign of good faith, America's like, we will get the Chinese to stop smoking our, opium. Our here. State Department's like, all right, we'll help out now. It's been right. 100 years or whatever. Right. 
Um, they did it right before a meeting in Shanghai. They're like, oh, how about this, bro? Right. right. Um, so Congress has created the first illegal drug, which is uh, opium for smoking. California went further than Congress, making possession illegal. Okay. A man named Young Kwong sued, saying the law violated his rights to liberty and property. Interesting. The state so, Supreme yeah. Court disagreed. Mass criminalization for drugs was now set up. Okay. The LA Times called the new law, quote, a death sentence for Chinatown. Dozens of them are dying mostly because forced, they are forced to abstain for the, from the dream pipe. <laughs> from the dream pipe. <gasps> From, That's what you call your penis, right? Dream <laughs> Authorities then escalated the drug war with raids and arrests. California passed a law to ban opium paraphernalia. There were gigantic public bonfires of seized opium pipe, pipes and other stuff in Chinatown. Dream pipes really burn. Yeah. But this new prohibition caused a problem. People who had become recreationally addicted to opium dens suddenly had no access. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you've created addicts. You can't just yeah. stop the thing that gives them the stuff and be like, okay, we yeah. have moved on. Yeah, you can't put a stop sign in front of a fall- moving boulder. <laughs> what was very easy to get on the streets in those days was the drug that had been rediscovered by Bear heroin. Though in 1913, Bear decided to stop making heroin, its popularity fell as a medicine due to addiction concerns. Right. So as, a, as an actual medicine that you buy at a pharmacy, it's becoming less popular, but on the streets... It's becoming it's a hit. becoming more popular. Dresser had also created another drug. Dresser's the guy from Bear. Yeah. That uh, he largely... Weirdly enough, a lot of drugs were kept in the dresser. Uh-huh. That he largely ignored, uh, but now it would get a renewed focus. It was called aspirin. Okay. When aspirin was first recommended to Dresser for Bear to move forward with, he rejected it, saying, quote, The product has no value. Yeah, you can't put it in your arm. <laughs> it doesn't make me feel good. Yeah. Though aspirin is thought to have significantly contributed to the death toll in the 1918 flu epidemic due to the fact that high doses of aspirin can be toxic, and these high doses can lead to fluid buildup in the lungs, up in the chance of infection. So... So too much. The 1918 flu killed very healthy people between 20 and 40, I think. Um, by they, they basically drowned. Their lungs, you know, they drowned. From, from the fluids. flu. From flu, yeah. But right. they were giving them as- tons of aspirin, which made it worse. Okay. So um, too much aspirin just sort of exacerbates that yeah. issue. But a good amount, the amount we take now is okay. Soon heroin, heroin was in the streets, controlled by the hand of illegal drug traffickers. Quote, uh, oh, no, not quote. Teenage boys in pool halls were sniffing heroin. Lots of people were getting on board. The pattern of use was spreading, and Congress responded with the Harrison Narcotic Act of 1914, which outlawed the non-medical use of heroin, morphine, and cocaine. Okay. It required sellers of narcotics to get a license, pay a tax, and outlaw the prescribing of narcotics to addicts. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So... So to sell it, you have to get a license, you have to pay a tax, and then you can't give it to the people that will break into your place to get it. The law was targeted at uh, use and associated with entertainment districts and working-class neighborhoods. Drugs became a matter of law enforcement, not public health. They didn't have much of an effect on drug use. Drugs were clearly not going away. Right. Soon the Los Angeles Times reported a, quote, 
Saturnalia of Violent Crime. Saturnalia of Violent Crime? Sure. There's a lot of words that they used back then that we don't use anymore. That doesn't seem right. Um, uh, by drug fiends, obviously. Okay. Which police attributed to the price pinch caused by state and federal restrictions. Okay. So violence is now increasing because they've cut off the drug addicts right. from their drugs. Right. Well, now you now violence can only be used by people who won't abuse it. Thank you. The headline was Drug Fiends Make Crime Wave. And that was November 30th, 1919. Okay. Uh, in 1919, John Doc Pemberton's Coca-Cola, which was considered an alternative to opium addiction, was modified to comply with the times, creating its famous non-alcoholic, non-cocaine form. <laughs> I wish they still put that on the can. Oh, it'd be the best. In the 1920s, a physician, Lawrence Kolb, tried to figure out why people became addicted. Okay. He put them into two categories, the innocents who became addicted due to mental issues and those who were recreational users who started doing heroin because it was fun. So finally we have a guy who's trying to figure out why people are becoming addicted, yeah. and he came up with great reasons. Cole had a lot of sympathy for those who became addicted due to pain and using the drug and not much for the recreational user. Okay. Kolb's views on addiction helped form the intellectual ideas for the war on drugs. The people, these, the recreational users were seen as junkies. Before heroin addicts were called junkies, this is just, this is just a classist right. system of separating the two, right. right? So rich people are, oh, you poor uh, but guy. You need it. You're affluent. Before heroin, heroin addicts were called junkies, they were called heroinists. Okay. But in New York City in the 19- I play the heroin. In New York City in the 1920s, they began collecting and selling scrap metal to support themselves in their habit. They spent their days scavenging junk and started to be called junkies. junkies. Right. The junkies became a profound symbol of defiance to mainstream America. There was a disdain for certain types of addicts, but not for others. So weird. Kolb's research showed addicts and what he called stable persons may exhibit different effects from the same drugs. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. All right. In 1921, supporters of the Harrison Act forced the newly formed U.S. Treasury Department's Narcotics Division to shut down drug maintenance clinics. So we used to have drug maintenance clinics. Places to, where... To deal with the addicts who... A place, right. Because they would become violent otherwise right. because they didn't have... The because there's no them. silver bullet solution. Here's a coping mechanism. 44 were closed by the end of the 1921, and now these addicts could not sustain their habit legally. In 1923, the narcotic division uh, banned all legal narcotic sales. Addicts were then forced to buy from illegal street dealers. In 1924... The Heroin Act made the manufacture and possession of illegal of, of heroin illegal. Okay. In the nineteen twenty five Heroin Act, it's called. Yeah. Okay. In nineteen twenty five, a thriving black market opened up in New York's Chinatown. So that was just three years. Okay. Good run though. During World War One, Bears assets, including their trademark rights in the US, UK, France, and Russia, were confiscated and it became common to call all brands of uh, the drug aspirin in those countries. After signing the Treaty of Versailles, Bear officially lost their trademark on heroin and aspirin in the U.S., France, Russia, and the United Kingdom. 
Okay. Interesting. That's part of a treaty, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Bayer would go on to become part of the Farben German chemical company conglomerate that used slave labor during World War II, including okay. managing slave labor camps. Bayer seems cool. And Farben was the group that manufactured Zyklon B, which was used in Nazi gas chambers. Cool stuff over there. Bayer was uh, forced to separate from Farben after World War II. One of Bear's executives would try... So that's why Bear left Farben. There you go. I, I've always sort of wondered what that parting was. One of Bear's executives was tried and convicted during the Nuremberg War Crimes tri Tribunal and sentenced to seven years in prison. He was involved in experiments at Auschwitz. The charges uh, he was convicted of were guilty of two, plunder and spoliation, and count three, slavery and mass murder. Bear and... and that that gets you seven years? Yeah, it's kind of weird. Good lawyer? I guess. Bear currently grosses around $54 billion per year with about $2 billion of that uh, How are you spelling as profit. B-E-B-A-Y-R. -E oh, Bear. Okay. Bear aspirin. Right. Okay. Um, I was... Uh, okay. Did you think I was saying bear? Bear. Oh. Yeah. Bear. Bear. They also have well over 100,000 employees. Fucking bear? Bear. That changes everything. You didn't know I was talking about bear? No. They're saying bear. I should have said it. Bayer. Bayer. Yeah. <laughs> bear. It's, it's a lot of retrospect going on right now. <laughs> bear aspirin yeah. was making heroin? Yeah. Oh, my God. We actually, this is when we actually read through it and you didn't get it until after we were done. Well, because I, I'm familiar with a company called Bayer. It sounded like you were saying Bayer. Uh, There's a difference. Yeah. Sorry. So, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not the one you know, throwing accusations around. I think we can call it a miscommunication. But There's this a is very not, small difference not... between Bayer and Bayer. Fair, or as you'd say, fair, but... Bayer. I, yeah, I mean, it's... It's still interesting. I should have said Bayer for you. Well, yes. But that's that, not how I... Does that how you say Bay? I don't say Bayer. I say Bear. I, Bayer. I think... Well, we can call the headquarters and see what they're using. In 1924, Congress outlawed the importation of opium for the purpose of manufacturing heroin. Subsequent laws further restricted legal use uh, for heroin and it is a Schedule II drug. Uh, today, it is broadly prohibited for all medical and recreational purposes and tightly controlled by the DEA. Or is it? Oh boy. Maybe medicine is prone to fads. We'll discuss the latest medical fad next week on part two. What? I gotta wait a week? Yeah. My little brain's not gonna be able to store all this for a yeah, week. It turns out something else happens with this. I have a feeling we're gonna know some of the people involved. Bear. Um I kinda hope people get that uh all mixed up and get mad. The what? People listening there you know the 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 guys who get mad. Oh, yes. Surely there will be. Some, some, guy, sort of... some guy on on Reddit was talking about how I say your and your wrong. Your and your wrong? Y-O-U-R and Y-O-U apostrophe R-E. That, that you say that wrong or you say, say them differently? I say Y-O-U apostrophe R-E incorrectly. <laughs> and he Is took that to, possible? He took to Reddit. <laughs> well, I'm sure you handled it fine. <laughs> no, I just, I just said you should probably get a life. <laughs> okay. Uh, that is crazy, though. The I can't wait for part two. 
I can't believe I got to wait. Normally, if we've done part twos, it's the same day. I know, but I didn't have time. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. The you know what we got to do? Previously on last week's stuff, <laughs> we got to do a little recapper. Um, fucking crazy though. It is. We just, yeah, we just have no solutions. Well, it turns out if everything is driven by profit, yeah, um, then you don't. People, then you care some, less about, yeah. Some people get really fucked over in the in the whole process. In this case, yeah. is just children, soldiers, women, the drug and, maintenance uh, centers, human adults. Drug maintenance centers is a good idea. There. Absolutely, should be fucking. Why we? Why do we want fucking addicts running around doing everything they can to get well, money? Because to Dave, get we'll drugs. solve it. Because we'll so, solve it all. It's so fucking. Because we'll solve stupid. the whole thing instead. Just because we'll care fix of it them. all instead. So we're not going to solve that problem. We're going to solve everything. It always comes back to the fucking attitude that they're weak. That's all it comes down to. As well, and you're to, right too. With the, I mean, as I'm sure I'll be hearing soon, but the, you know, the class. <laughs> the classism oh, yeah. that is oh yeah I- rich people get to it. go to their fucking malibu places yeah and everyone else just gets to fucking run on the street uh trying to rob someone and it really is i mean that that is the difference the di- like that that is so crazy the difference is the how how do you afford it within your lifestyle and yeah. right and that's it. It's not a matter of, oh, it does this to everyone. It's like, well, you don't bother us because you're rich. Yeah. You're not that. I mean, the rich people can be a problem. But then again, that kid who killed four people when he was drunk driving and got off completely scot-free because he's rich. Like yeah. that's, you know, if, if a poor, if a poor black no, kid there does was that, this video. There was this video of, uh, I think, I don't know. If, I think the guy, I don't think he had a gun, but it was like a white dude in like a cemetery going crazy. Yeah. And all these cops with their guns drawn on him, and he's being super violent, and they subdue the guy. Yeah. And you're just like, that's not to say that that doesn't happen, but there is something that you're just very, you're very used to seeing. uh, He gets shot. Yeah, a black black person gets shot there. I mean, it's like like when you see the, there's great videos online of, 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 a white guy carrying an AK, whatever, down yeah, the street, yeah. wrapped around his back, and then they show the same video with a black guy, and the cops will just walk up and go, "What are you doing? What are you doing today?" To the white yeah. guy, and the black a, guy, get on the fucking ground! Right. And it's the same fucking block. It's the same. It's the same laws, just different skin color. So, look, that's what we do with our drug laws. We treat we treat people differently. Well, good. And but now, well, we'll see next week. Now it might be affecting a different, a different person what yeah not the white (laughs) (laughs) we sign drugs happy fourth oh hey there everybody it's gareth you know from this uh this podcast uh listen i've got some stand-up shows i'm inviting the garmy the gareth army to join me for. I will be in Fort Collins, Colorado, August 18th and August 19th. I will be in Minneapolis, Minnesota, August 24th through August 26th at Acme. I will be going to the UK in September. Please join me. I will be in Glasgow, September 13th, London, September 15th, 
Dublin, September 17th. And September 19th, Manchester. Birmingham, September 20th. Bristol, September 22nd. And Cardiff, September 24th. And then in November, I'll be in Australia. November 10th, almost sold out, I think. I'll be in Melbourne, Australia. Then I will be in Northbridge, Australia on November 15th. Adelaide, November 16th. Canberra, November 17th. Brisbane, November 18th. And then I will be in uh, Sydney on November 24th. Go to GarethReynolds.com for tickets. Garmy, let's get at it. After it. Let's see you there. Hey there, people listening to The Dollop. Uh, this is Gareth. Yes, the same guy. I Listen, I have a new podcast called We're Here to Help that I'm doing with my friend Jake Johnson. It's basically a call and advice show where we don't say that we're professionals because we aren't, but we try to help people with problems that are important to them. You can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts, and it is out right now. So go listen to We're Here to Help with Jake and Gareth. We're here to help with Gareth and Jake. I don't remember how we did it, but either way, fun. Half Hour comes out Tuesday, August 22nd, and the episodes will be out every Tuesday and Friday. We're here to help 